0: Alright, so for this next section, we're going to talk about um, some teratogens. I was thinking about doing it maybe like a rapid fire style where I say a teratogen and you tell me what's going to be wrong with them. Does that sound good to you, Dr. McKay? Let's do it. Alright, let's start with alcohol.
1: So the biggest thing is you're going to have fetal alcohol syndrome. That's actually one of the most common preventable teratogen exposure effects on babies. So that's why, even though it was a little ham-handed when the CDC Uh, tried to reach out to women of childbearing age about being thoughtful about their alcohol consumption. It was not particularly well received by the general populace, but um, it's something to think about because alcohol is, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome and the effects of alcohol on fetuses is a big preventable modifier. And so one of the things you think about is, you know, the flat philtrum, the thin upper lip, small fifth fingernail, mid-face hypoplasia, short pale fissures. But honestly, everybody kind of pictures in their mind that face. It's that short, thin lip. It's the short philtrum, the flat philtrum, and the mid-face hypoplasia, even more so than your average baby, because babies in general have some mid-face hypoplasia, but they have it even more significantly than your average baby.
0: And absolutely. Every time I've seen a question on a a practice test or a review or anything – it's usually they show you that picture, and it's pretty straightforward. All right, so let's talk about some anticonvulsants. How about phenytoin?
1: Yeah, so phenytoin kind of can affect things across the board. You're going to get heart defects, you're going to get skeletal problems, and you can get some eye anomalies, so uh, be careful with that. That's, I think, one of the classic ones that people will talk about when it comes to the anticonvulsants.
0: How about valproic acid?
1: The biggest thing is neurotube defects. Uh, even though I can't pronounce that very well, that's the thing you got to think about. Absolutely. And carbamazepine, spina bifida, which is another thing. Just in general, that's why. Remember, that's why we all have our have women of childbearing age take their prenatal vitamins, is to make sure we can prevent uh, spina bifida and other neural tube defects by making sure they get their B12 and the fully. All right. How about lithium? Yeah, so even though I don't think I've ever actually seen any cases of this, uh, and I don't think very few people ever have, uh, this is one of those things I feel like triggers on the boards all the time. It's cardiac defects specifically Epstein's Anomaly. I feel like even though you don't see it a lot, they're going to probably ask about it on the boards. All right, and then the next one, proactive, isotretinoin. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of issues with that, uh, to the point where back in the day I think they used to talk about with teens like if they were going to be on that they had to sign like i will definitely use contraception if i have sexual intercourse uh, i don't think people do that anymore to be honest this is not something i use all that often if i think somebody's acting is that bad i'm going to send them to a dermatologist but that's not what we're here to talk about right now so it definitely can cause some birth defects and the biggest things you're going to see are some microcephaly microophthalmia hyperplastic ears truncus arteriosus
0: and an absent thymus excellent all right, how about some anticoagulants? I think the biggest one we're probably going to come in contact with is warfarin or Coumadin. Sure, and you got to worry about hypoplastic digital phalanges as well as stippled epiphyses. Can you tell me what a stippled epiphyses
1: is? No, I cannot. Excellent. Google that, guys. <laughs> yes. The, doc- the the Dr. Google is your best friend. <laughs> All right, how about ACE inhibitors? The biggest thing is because it you think about it it's something you take for your kidneys it's going to then affect the development of the kidneys so you can have babies can show up with anuria because they've totally damaged their kidneys they can have oligohydramnios, which again because they're not peeing they're not making any added fluid which by the way is really gross when you think about that like basically the baby is sitting in a bubble of
0: their own pee you know just keep swimming the human right <laughs> nice. the human body is awesome right it is all right, knock that out. Let's go ahead and talk about some more metabolism stuff. Um, for this next section, I think we should talk a little bit about some amino acid metabolic disorders. Um, those are going to be from the, bo- uh, from the book that we use for review, Alcaptanuria, Homocystinuria, Oculocutaneous Tyrosinemia, and PKU. You go ahead and tell us whatever you think we need to know, Dr. McCown.
1: All right, I skipped over most of that because I'm an associate professor, and so I know better. No, I actually, once again, went to the content specifications. I tried to also channel my inner Dr. Hainline and my inner Dr. Wapner, who you guys don't know, but she was also awesome. Uh, She, her and Dr. Hainline actually were basically like the grandparents of... Uh, metabolism in children across the country. Dr. Wagner unfortunately, is no longer with us. She passed away a handful of years ago, but they were awesome. If you find some old-timers, you could probably get some really interesting stories about Dr. Wagner. All right. Back
0: to amino acid uh, metabolism.
1: Oh, right. This is not story time with Dr. McKenna. Okay. So, the biggest thing is, again, same thing like we talked about with genetics, a um, this is actually I'm gonna start when I give people advice during their semi annuals, this is one of the sections I'm gonna start also referring to. When I when I point people to how to study for the boards and what to worry about and what not to worry about, I usually have people think about hemonc and hemonc in that people worry about what do they have to know. I gotta know all those chemotherapy but role maps and this and that. No, you don't need to know any of that. What you need to know is how stuff presents. And the same thing happens with metabolism. So a big section is gonna be what about screening? How does newborn screening play into this? How does other screening when you worry that a kid has one of these diseases? When is the role of genetic counseling? Why do you do it? When do you do it? How do you plan an initial response? Uh, those are some of the biggest things, not for any specific disease, just in general. I think this kid has a me- metabolic disorder. What's my next step? And so, honestly, a, lot, a, a bigger amount of the questions, and you may have even seen this from your experience with prep questions, is... I think this kid has a metabolic disorder, what do I do? And so the three things, the three situations they want you to think about um, are going to be, what if I have a kid in a coma who I think has a metabolic disorder? What if I have a kid who is is hypoglycemic, and what about if they're acidotic? Um, I'm going to more cover just coma and hypoglycemia. The biggest thing to think about is there's a lot of reasons why kids can be in a coma. Certainly we think classically about infections and they're acidotic because they have a heart lesion or drugs, especially if they're a teenager. But metabolic diseases is one of the things to think about. And so I think just thinking about they might have a metabolic disorder is already a win. Um, Certainly if it has multi-systemic Problems. There's a possibility that it could be due to metabolic disorders because most metabolic disorders focus on multiple organs because multiple organs are doing various metabolic jobs. If you're working it up, you're going to want to make sure you get electrolytes. You want to get a blood gas to see if they're acidotic. You're going to want to get liver functions. You're going to want to get an ammonia level specifically. So that's if they're in a coma. And those are the big things. Those are some of the big things to work up and think about. If they're hypoglycemic, the biggest reason why kids who have metabolic diseases are hypoglycemic is because they have some version of a disease where they can't get what most of us have in terms of the way we store our glucose in terms of whether that's fat, whether it's glycogen, whether it's some other versions... They can't, or protein for that matter, they can't take any, some or all or one of those forms and turn it into glucose. So the biggest thing you've got to do is if you have a kid who has metabolic issues, known or unknown, if they're hypoglycemic, you've got to get them glucose. And you've got to get them to stop, stop being ketotic and stop trying to break down their body. And so part of it is just making sure that they have glucose. They actually have a substrate that they can use for energy so that they can stop trying to do all these other things that don't work that then cause other problems you know because when they're trying to break down protein that doesn't work, that they can't to get to sugar that they can't make they're going to have all these bad byproducts and that's why they become you know have their ketotic or that's why they're in a coma same thing if they're trying to break down fat but they're stuck somewhere they get all these bad byproducts that are causing extra problems same things if they have a glycogen distorted disease or something else again their pathway to glucose is broken and so not only can they not make the sugar that they need to sustain brain function and other things they are making off all these other side products that are not helping the situation so the sooner you can get them to stop doing that by giving them sugar the better off they're going to be so let me get that right don't have sugar, give sugar. I know, right? It seems... It, I said a lot of words that make it sound very complicated. I'm actually starting to sound like Dr. Hain now. But yes, if they don't have sugar, give them sugar. I'm glad you're here, David.
0: <laughs> All right, that was a lot of good information. Um, as far as PKU's concerned, what can you tell us about that? So I'm really excited to talk about this because back
1: in the day, uh, I actually wanted to be an endocrinologist, I, and my senior project was about newborn screens in general. Uh, and so I used, I still love the newborn screen, but I used to have a, an especially special place in my heart for newborn screening in general. And PKU is a big part of that. PKU was the first test that people tested for when it came to newborn screening. Um, and it was one of the first diseases where they said, if we can make... You know, it's a classic newborn screen test because, it's it yes, it, it's something that's rare but not too rare, and it's something that you can diagnose relatively cheaply but also has... A relatively cheap intervention that can cause, if you give it, leads to huge positive benefits for the child. So, you know, if you you figure out that someone has PKU early, you can change their diet and have a huge outcome in their life. So, again, PKU, they have a deficiency of an enzyme that they cannot convert phenylalanine to tyrosine. We need tyrosine um, and since they can't do it, not only do we have a problem because they don't have tyrosine, but then they build up all these other uh, precursors that are going to be toxic to the brain and other things people are not exactly sure how this affects the the brain and your development exactly uh, there's some thought that there's some oxidative stress from some of these products hanging around and that leads to some damage of the brain there's also some thought that there's abnormal development of neurons and glia and extracellular matrix which again leads to some of the classic symptoms that you're going to find so the biggest thing that you're going to see is profound intellectual disability and so which is why affecting sort of parts of the brain specifically are going to lead to the effects of PKU. The reason PKU is the main reason why you have to wait 48 hours after feeding protein to say that the that the newborn screen is official. Some of it is because you just have to have 48 hours worth of protein. But honestly, the biggest reason is they did studies and they showed that the sensitivity of the test, if you only did it after 24 hours of protein feeding, was about 90%. If you did it after 48 hours, the sensitivity was 95-ish percent. If you did it after 72 hours, it went up to 97%. So, sure, could the test be more perfect if you waited 72 hours? Yes, but the, the gain from 48 to 72 is not nearly as significant or important as that gain from 24 to 48. So that's why, ultimately, that's why 48 hours is the cut off because that jump in sensitivity was so big that it made it worthwhile.
0: I'm glad Um, I've been a pseudo pediatrician for two years and I finally know why they wait 48 hours for the newborn screen. Exactly. Well, you know, that's why you have an expert like me on your podcast to talk about this awesome
1: peripheral ephemera.
2: Just a little extra pearl on PKU. If you have a mother who has PKU who is contemplating pregnancy, she needs to be on a PKU diet Um, before she gets pregnant. Because if she uh, is not, even though when they're older, uh, people don't have to be as strict with their diet as they do when they're young. But if a female is not strict with her diet and then she gets pregnant, she can cause uh, developmental delay and uh, birth defects in her unborn child.
0: All right, so we're going to get a little added bonus here. I didn't come completely prepared to talk about all this other stuff, but the good Dr. McKenna did. So he's going to talk a little bit more um, about some metabolism stuff with us. And next on, we're going to go to glycogen storage disorders. Sure. So again, there is a wide variety and number.
1: If you look at up to date or if you go to Dr. Google, you're going to find a whole bunch of them. And the biggest thing is you're not going to need to know all of them or really the names of any of them. The biggest things are Recognize the clinical features associated with glycogen storage disease. So again, if you are having a hard time time storing your glycogen, where do we store glycogen? We store it in two places, our liver and our muscle. So you're going to have problems in your liver and your muscle. Some people are going to have hyper, uh, sorry, hepatomegaly. Other people are not. Um, But basically, these are the big problems you're going to see. And it's going to affect those two main places where we store glycogen. And then know what, plan the appropriate appropriate intermediate and long-term management of glycogen storage diseases while considering the long-term prognosis. Again, this is what you're going to see for most of these diseases. So, you again, you don't need to know what's the exact genetic disorder, what's the g- exact chromosome that's wrong, what's the name of this disease. Like, type 1 goes with this and type 2 goes with, like, no, 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 you don't need to know any of that. You just need to know, in general, how do you manage these things. And so, if you can figure out that, and if you can look at that for all of the diseases, whether it's you know the other things that are listed out here, hyperinsulinemia, lipoprotein storage disorders, urea cycle deficiencies, organic acidemias, all of those things, all of them talk about intermediate and long term management. So go and look that up. Jot down a few notes so you have that. That's the kind of stuff that you want to study, not like okay, type one glycogen disorders
0: is this name, and type two is that. Like, don't worry about any of that. So glycogen storage. Let me get this straight again. Don't have sugar in the immediate uh, presentation. Don't have sugar, give sugar. Well, it's a little true, but it's going to be a little more complicated than that because this is more of glycogen
1: gets put in the wrong places and you can get hepatosplenomegaly because we're having a hard time storing glycogen, not breaking the glycogen down. But yes, in general, as always, no sugar, give sugar. Perfect. All right.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about galactosemia? All right.
1: As another thing that is on the Indiana newborn screen, I would believe, pretty much every newborn screen across the country in all 50 states but that is the one other thing to remember if you move to another state every state has a slightly different newborn screen they are going to cover different things now the nice thing about the days of mass spectrometers and things like that you know they cover they cover more than just the classic 12 or 7 or 6 or whatever an individual state has but it's still a good idea to ask exactly what is covered in your state's newborn screen if you move to another state because indiana where you're training or if you're if you're listening here as an indiana resident Um, We cover one thing, whereas other states cover other things. So we cover cystic fibrosis now for the past 10 or 15 years, whereas before we didn't. Other
0: states may cover it, they may not. So always, you know, local listing. check your local listings to see what's going on. And you guys stay tuned because I believe we have a CF talk coming up from one of the good pulmonologists here at Riley as well. So keep listening. Excellent.
1: Um, In terms of specifically galactosemia, I like to bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, because it's on a newborn screen. Two, because you're probably going to get this on a test at some way, shape, or form in the future. Um, The biggest association between galactosemia and a test is they're going to ask, you have a baby that has E. coli sepsis. What disease are you worried that they have? It's galactosemia. Lock it down. That's what the answer is. That's what the test is. They're going to ask you on that, whether it's an in-training exam, whether it's on the boards, whether it's step three. They're going to ask that somewhere because it's that classic. The associated is that classic. And so make sure you know about that. The other big thing to know is that they can't breastfeed. So you can't breastfeed them. I bring that up because even though I love endocrinology and newborn screening and all that, I was one of the two people in noon conference one day when the good Dr. Nebesio was talking about this that uh, didn't answer the question appropriately. And it was even by, like, raise your hand. Like, who thinks you should? Who thinks you shouldn't? Myself and one other person uh, who is still around in the system. I won't I won't shame them publicly. But I was one of the two idiots who raised my hand. So all you youngsters out there, um, I'm channeling my inner Harry Carey and Steve Stone um, from back on the old Cubs broadcasts. For all you youngsters out there, it's okay to be wrong. You could still be a semi-successful pediatrician like me and still be wrong sometimes, or a lot of times, or really often. So don't be afraid to give out a wrong answer, because you never know when you or someone else is going to learn from your wrong answer. For example, I'm never for- going to forget that you don't breastfeed kids who you worry have galactosemia, because I was wrong
0: that one time. All right, and for the last one, I'm not going to butcher this word again, so I'm going to let go ahead and let Dr. McKenna present it.
1: Yeah, bucopolysaccharidosis is, 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 is. is. Mainly this is going to be Hurler Syndrome. So the biggest thing is they can't break down MPSs, these mucopolysaccharides. mucopolysaccharides. Where do those live? Again, that's the other big thing to think about is... When they're asking about the different disease, where do these things live? So where does glycogen live? We already talked about that. Where do mucopolysaccharides live? They mostly live in the bone and the cartilage, so that's a lot of where these kids are going to have problems. They can't break them down, so they get deposited in places. So you're going to get bony abnormalities and you're going to get cartilage abnormalities. The other hard part is these also get deposited in the brain just because a lot of times there's not anywhere else to put them in, so they start also getting deposited in the brain. So a lot of these kids, besides having some some skeleton skull cartilage abnormalities um, things like the nose and the ears they're also going to have it deposited in the brain and they're going to have some intelligence and developmental issues because
0: of that I remember something when I was studying back in the day about Hunter and Hurler and Hunter there was an X Was that did that have something to do with inheritance?
1: that sounds very correct this is one of those things that I should have studied before I came here but I think you have some semblance of a right answer there I'm going to give you props for that
0: We're going to go ahead and clarify. We'll add that in later.
2: Luckily for David, I'm really good at fact-checking on the internet what the heck he is talking about. He's talking about the hunter syndrome is X-linked. And so if you think about a hunter, he shoots his gun at a practice X, and X marks the spot for the hunter. So hunter is X-linked.
0: All right. And to finish this section out, uh, you want to talk a little bit about Down syndrome. Is that correct? Correct. So I'm not going to necessarily get into, because we could have a whole cop podcast, and I'm definitely not the expert on
1: how to manage in the short-term, intermediate, and long-term um, the medical issues of children who have trisomy 21. But inter- in the genetic section, there are also some things to think about uh, at a more basic level and then more specific to trisomy 21. So, they're going to want you to understand how a deletion can affect things. That's not how that doesn't affect trisomy 21. But the one big thing that can is translocation. So, they ask you three questions when it comes to the outline. One, understand the risk factors associated with subsequent pregnancies when an infant is born with a translocation chromosome abnormality. Specifically, they want to know, understand the risk factors of having another child with trisomy 21, trisomy 21 when the mother is a balanced translocation carrier. Now, if you're like me, when you heard those words, you're like, hmm. That sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, I totally went to Dr. Google and I did a lot of deep dive into meiosis and mitosis and translocation and all that stuff. And so I'm going to try and give you the thumbnail version of that right now. Now, a majority of children who are born with trisomy 21, it's a spontaneous, you know, two 21 chromosomes get into one gamete and then one ends up having none. So if that one ended up having to be the product of conception, that would just be probably an, an instant... Miscarriage because it doesn't have the right number. But if you ended up having spontaneously a gamete that has two Xs and that gets paired up with one that has one X, that's how you end up, for the most part, having a child that's born with trisomy 21. As we've talked about a lot in various places, advanced maternal age increases the likelihood of that. However, that's not the only... Genetic possibility for how you can have a child who has trisomy 21 the other one is if you have a mom who has a balanced translocation which again i didn't really remember what this was although i remember those words were english words that uh, applied to the medical profession so basically somewhere when the mom was being formed usually what happens is part of the 20 the one of the arms of the 21 chromosome gets linked up to another one often it's the number 14 chromosome so they'll have a combo 14 21 and so when all things are considered it's balanced because even though the the 20 will get linked part of the 20 got linked out of the 14 the other part of the 21 is still there so the mom who is carrying this is still genetically normal because all the genetic material is there it's just not organized right so for her no problems however when she goes to make eggs uh, or when you know when she's forming as an embryo, when she's making eggs, because as we all remember, I just remembered right now, the eggs are already made, as opposed to sperm. where, you know, again, males make sperm all through our lives. Females, they make the eggs all initially as they're being formed, and they're just sitting there dormant, waiting to be expelled from the the ovary each month. But they're already all there. Like you have your full complement by the time you're born. Anyway, when the mom goes to make those as she's being formed you know there are six different possibilities and so if you see if you're seeing someone who was not advanced maternal age who has a child who has trisomy 21 it is possible that it's because mom is carrying a balanced translocation and there is a 1 in 6 risk that this will happen again because mom carries this balanced translocation and you just don't know which gamete she's going to give to make the product of conception that leads to the um the birth of a child because the possibilities are you know because when you have that balance translocation things don't match up right so normally you know 14 matches with 14 and then they split apart well when you have a 14 with a part of a 21 it doesn't it doesn't quite have a good partner to match up with so it could do all sorts of different things the possible most of the possibilities from that odd matchup are going to lead to lethal combinations so either you're going to have a 14 and a four you're going to end up with a two 14s that's not going to be a viable option. Fourteen by itself, that's not going to be a viable option. When it matches up to a normal other, when that matches up to a normal sperm, twenty-one by itself, if that matches up with a normal sperm, that's not going to be a possibility of, of a viable pregnancy. But if you, you, it's possible that you could have a, still a normal child because if you if you pass if if things get matched up just right, you can still pass off one fourteen and one twenty-one to match up with the dad's one fourteen and one twenty-one. But the other possibility is that you're going to pass along a 14 plus a 21 plus your normal 21, so then you're going to have three 21s, and then you're going to have a child with Down syndrome. That ends up being about 5% of kids who have Down syndrome. My verbal explanation of that may not be good mental processing for most of you. It wouldn't be for me, to be honest with you. So you may want to open up Dr. Google and look at some of this while I'm talking about it, because then it's going to make a whole lot more sense. I'm going to be honest. I have to think about it for like 20 minutes, draw a whole lot of pictures. You can't see it through the podcast, but I have a big piece of paper that's looking at, that has all this in front of me. This just wasn't in my brain.
0: Basically, what he's saying is there's alternative methods for having a child with Down Syndrome, and it's important to think about that, especially when you're looking at test questions.
1: Correct. And then the other two, last, before we go, the other thing is people like to focus on, on Trisomy 21 Down Syndrome because... You know, we see a lot of children with it. It's it's relatively common amongst genetic diseases. But the other two trisomies that they're also gonna want you to think about and recognize clinical features of are trisomy thirteen and trisomy eighteen. So make sure you spend a little bit of time with that those as well.
0: Excellent. Appreciate it, Dr. McKenna. Okay. No